As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. A rule of thumb would be 0.1% every year. And so if the in-place cap rate is 5%, you're selling at year five, then you assume an exit cap rate of 5.5%. Some people would go even higher than that. Some people have a different way of calculating it. But in general, that's the rule of thumb is 0.1% every year. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template 
should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing. Enjoy this episode and for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com or to learn more about the apartment syndication school, go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hello, best of your listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Syndication School series, a free resource focused on the how-tos of apartment syndications. As always, I am your host, Theo Hicks. Each week, we air a podcast episode that focuses on a specific aspect of the apartment syndication investment strategy. And for a lot of these episodes, there are free documents for you to download, especially for the the first batch of episodes we did where we walked through the entire syndication process in extreme detail from A to Z, from being a complete noob to selling your first deal. So all the documents that we're giving away during that period are something that can help you on each step along the way in the process. And then every once in a while, we give away free documents for episodes where we go into more detail on those steps. But those are all available at syndicationschool.com. So we are in the midst of a what was originally a three-part series, and depending on how long we go today, might be turning into a four-part series about some of the red flags when you are presenting a deal to your investors slash originally underwriting your deal. So these are things that a sophisticated passive investor is going to very easily recognize when they're reviewing your deal as a red flag and will either ask you what's going on here to which you should have a good answer or they just won't invest at all. You won't hear from them at least for that deal. So these are things that you want to avoid at all costs. So in parts one, We start off by talking about the market red flags. These would be a stagnant or shrinking population, two, a stagnant or shrinking rental rates, three, a low absorption rate, four, not including an analysis on the neighborhood or the submarket that the property is located in, but only the overall MSA or the city or even the state. I don't think I've ever seen someone just say, hey, I'm investing this property in Dallas, Texas. Look how great the state of Texas is. And that's it. I'm sure it's possible. And number five would be the population demographic doesn't match the property. And then in part two, we began by talking about business plan at red flags. So the property class doesn't match the business plan. And then number seven would be that it's not actually a value add or it's not actually a turnkey or it's not actually a stressed or opportunistic type of deal. It's something else. And then we talked about projected return red flags. And so number eight overall would be guaranteeing a return or guaranteeing anything your investors. And number nine would be not performing a sensitivity analysis, which is when you just different assumptions you've had, the best case scenario and worst case scenario. 
and then present the best case, the worst case, and the baseline scenario to your investors. And then we concluded part two by talking about debt red flags. So this was number 10, a total loan term that is less than 2x the business plan. So that would essentially be one return key when you plan on selling for value add and distress when you plan on being done with all the renovations. Debt two times that length. Number 11 overall was not buying a cap on an adjustable interest rate loan. And number 12 would be including the refinance or supplemental loan proceeds in the return projections to your investors. And so parts one and two for the first 12 red flags. We're going to knock out as many as we can today in part three. And then, as I mentioned in the beginning, potentially go into a part four to conclude. So for now, let's go on to part three, but make sure you check out part one and part two, where I go into a lot more detail on those first 12 red flags that I talked about. So to kick off part three, let's start talking about the purchase and sales assumptions, red flags. So this is something that there's really a lot, (laughs) but again, we're looking at this from the perspective of your passive investor, right? What are the things that you typically present to your past investors that you want to make sure are conservative, right? Now, on your end, we've talked about at length how to underwrite a deal properly. So we're going to go over some of the main assumptions that you make and what would be considered a red flag or a hole in your underwriting that a past investor will definitely identify when reviewing your investment summary because this information is either included and a red flag or is missing and is therefore a red flag. So again, these are the assumptions you make when you're underwriting a deal for the purchase and for the sale of the property. And the first one, potentially the most important one, because this has the biggest impact on the returns, is going to be the exit cap rate. So the red flag would be the exit cap rate is equal to or less than the in-place cap rate. So when you're underwriting the deal, you input all your purchase assumptions. You input your pro forma for every single year, what your net operating income is going to be. And based on that, You hit the 7%, 8%, 10% preferred return to your investors. And if you're doing a value add or opportunistic deal, then once you sell, based off of that forced appreciation, based off of the value added via the increased net operating income, now that new year five or whatever year net operating income is going to be used to determine what the sales price is going to be. Maybe you project to have a 50% return at sale. But if you change the exit cap rate, just a little bit, that 50% return might be a 40% return or a 30% return or a 20% return or a negative percent return, right? Depending on how high the cap rate is and how high the net operating income is. So when you buy the property up front, the in-place cap rate is set based off of the purchase price and then the in-place net operating income. Or sometimes it'll be based off of the purchase price and then the stabilized net operating income. So it says, what cap rate are you buying the property at? And then if it's a really distressed deal, sometimes the in-place cap rate will be based off of what the market cap rate is for similar deals that recently sold based off of the final product. So if you plan on renovating up to a class A, then you want to look at other class A product at that time to see what cap rate they're trading at. That's the in-place cap rate, the cap rate you buy the property at. And then on the back end, you want to estimate to the best of your ability an exit cap rate. That is the cap rate in this future time that will be used to determine the value of the property. Now, the red flag here being that you assume that the in-place cap rate is the exact same as the exit cap rate, or you assume that the exit cap rate is less than (laughs) the in-place cap rate, which is even worse, which is assuming that in the first scenario, the market is the same 
at sale as this purchase. The second scenario where the exit cap rate is less than the in-place cap rate, you're assuming that the market is better at sale than at purchase, which is totally possible, right? It's totally possible that you buy during a recession or you buy at a time where cap rates are really high and then five years later, the cap rate is actually lower. So not only do you get the value from the increase in that operating income, but you also get the increase in value from the reduction in the cap rate because there's an inverse relationship between the value and the cap rate. But what if the cap rate doesn't go down? What if the cap rate goes up? Well, then the return projections that you provided to your investors are going to be way off in the wrong way. As opposed to saying, okay, well, right now cap rates are at 5% and it's possible the market continues chugging along or it's possible that things get better. But to be safe, we're assuming that the market is actually going to be worse at sale. So a rule of thumb would be 0.1% every year. And so if the in-place cap rate is 5%, if you're selling at year five, then you assume an exit cap rate of 5.5%. Some people would go even higher than that. Some people have a different way of calculating it. But in general, that's the rule of thumb is 0.1% every year. That way, if the cap rate of sales five or 4.75 or four and a half, then your returns are off, but they're underestimated as opposed to overestimating your returns. So huge red flag is in your underwriting. You're assuming that the exit cap rate is going to be better than the in-place cap rate. And then it's also a red flag, still big, but not alarm bells going off. DEFCON 20 would be if the exit cap rate is equal to the in-place cap rate. So that's number 13. Number 14 is another assumption that you make, which is the revenue growth. This is separate than if you're doing like a value add or a distressed play where you are renovating the property and then renovating the interiors and then you are raising rent space off of that. I'm talking about the natural revenue growth that you underwrite into the deal based off of the various rental forecast predictions and inflation. So traditionally, farmers indicators will assume a natural revenue growth of 2 to 3% every year. And the same thing for the expenses. Now, sometimes you might come across a deal where you're reading the OM and the broker is telling you that, oh, we're assuming a 5% revenue growth every single year because for the past five years, rents have grown by 10% every year. So we're being conservative and saying 5%. Well, just because you see that, as an indicator, that should be a red flag when you're reading a deal. Similarly, a past investor who's revealing your deal will see that as a red flag. And so if you say that rents have grown by 10% every year for the past five years and they're projected to grow by 8%, every year for the next five years. And we're being conservative and assuming a 5% revenue growth every single year. You're not being conservative. You don't want to be aggressive with the revenue growth for similar reasons as the exit cap rate, right? What if those projections are wrong and it grows by 3% instead of 5%, then your returns are way off in the wrong direction as opposed to if it actually ends up being 5% and you assumed two or 3%, well, there you go. Icing on the cake for your investors. So make sure you're being smart with these revenue growth assumptions and you're not basing them off of a forecast, but basing them off of the standard 2 to 3%. Okay, number 15 is going to be about the vacancy rate assumptions. So this is assuming you're doing a value add or a distressed business plan. A red flag would be having a vacancy rate that's the exact same the entire time. So year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, 5% vacancy rate regardless of what you're doing to their property. Because, well, that's not actually the case. Because when you're doing a value-add deal, you go in there and just by taking over the property and you start doing your exterior renovations right away, 
some of the residents are going to get the hint that, okay, well, there's new owners in here. They're making the property look nicer. They're probably at some point going to do this to the units too. And I'm probably not going to be able to afford that new rent. So I'm going to move out. I'm going to month to month lease and I'm going to give my notice or I'm going to just skip and just dip out of there and disappear or somewhere in between. Or at the end of my lease, I'm just going to leave and not renew. So from that, you're going to get some skips and some people leaving. So that's going to increase vacancy. And then once units begin to be turned over, as opposed to just going in there and maybe slapping on a new coat of paint and redoing the carpet and putting a new renter in there, which might take like a week or two, you need to go in there and renovate the entire unit. So it's going to be vacant longer. So because of those reasons, you may even force vacancy up where you go in there and everyone who's on a month-to-month lease, you give a notice to vacate. So because of all these different reasons, when you're doing a value-add business plan, you want to assume a higher vacancy rate during at least the first year, maybe even into the second year. And even if the current vacancy at purchase is 5% or 3%, right? it doesn't matter. If you plan on going in there and doing renovations, expect tenants to leave and expect units to be vacant longer. So you need to account for that in your underwriting. So if you have in your investment summary that we plan on renovating 100% of the units in two years and the vacancy is going to be 5% during those two years as well as 5% afterwards, that's a problem. So you need to be assuming a higher vacancy rate 8%, 10%, even higher depending on the market occupancy during your renovations. That way, if renovations go faster, if no one skips, if everyone's willing to stay and just have their units renovated while they live there and the vacancy ends up being 5% or lower, that's great. But again, if it's not, then you've already accounted for that in your returns to your investors. The last assumption we're going to talk about would be your CapEx budget. So even if you're doing a turnkey deal, there's going to be some CapEx expense, right? For the turnkey, it might be very, very minor. Maybe you need to repair a couple of small things, or maybe you're just going to rebrand into something new or whatever. There's usually going to be a CapEx budget for everything. And then obviously for value add, it'll be even bigger. And for distress, it'll be the biggest. So this is important for all business plans, but probably the most important when you're doing any sort of renovations. So this budget is going to include, let's just take a value add, for example, it's going to include all the costs to update the units, to replace whatever you're replacing, to add the new stuff, and then the labor costs. Similarly, for the exteriors or any deferred maintenance, you're going to have the materials and labor costs. Any amenity upgrades, materials, and labor costs. You don't want to stop there though, right? You want to also have a contingency for if something goes wrong. Again, the heavier the value add, the more important this contingency budget is because you're not going to, number one, know every single thing that's wrong with the property before you buy it. Two, you're not going to have the actual quotes from contractors until after you buy the property. So you can get estimates from contractors. You can have an estimate based off of previous deals, but the end of the day is still a pretty big unknown. So give yourself a 10, 15% buffer, which means that you have a 10 to 15% contingency budget so that you say, okay, I plan on spending a million dollars on all of these different things, but... So they don't really know exactly how much this contract is going to charge and maybe they're breaking into a few walls and they might find issues back there. I'm going to have an extra $150,000 just in case. If it's not used, that money goes back to your investors anyways. But if you need it, then it's there to use. So a big red flag is if you do not have a contingency budget included in your budget. 10 to 15% is pretty normal. And again, this is on top of any operating reserves to cover any sort of shortfalls at the beginning of the business plan because of vacancies and lower rents and people leaving and things like that. So I think we're going to stop there. We kind of talked about that one a lot. 
and we're going to complete in part four the remaining red flags. We've got 10 red flags to go. So we're going to talk about red flags on your pro forma and then red flags in the rental and sales comparables, right? So we're kind of going in order of how these variety of things appear when you're underwriting as well as in the investment summary. So that concludes this episode. Make sure you check out parts one and of two. We're going to be talked about the red flags as it relates to markets, business plans, and the projected returns and the debt. Today, we talked about the purchase and sales assumptions used when underwriting. In the next episode, part four, we're going to talk about, again, the pro forma, the rental sales comparable properties, and then other red flags that couldn't really fit into any of these categories. So until then, check out other episodes, download the free documents, have a best ever day, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Are you serious about taking the first step in the gateway to financial freedom? Then join Jake and Gino on a four-week course that will teach you how to become a multifamily real estate investor. Go to jakeandgino.com. That's J-A-K-E-A-N-D. G-I-N-O dot com.